everyone. Welcome to yet another episode of In the Fire. We are happy to bring you this episode today. We are delighted to. It is, uh, as you all are aware, it's January and it's probably cold outside. And we are trying to warm you up with some uh, Bible-driven fire. Yeah, if you're getting this in the car... I'm sure once you hop in your car, for most people, it's going to be pretty chilly in there. So instead of cranking up the heat and, you know, waiting for the heat to come on, just plug in this episode and it'll heat that car right up. <laughs> you can listen to it immediately once you get in. So Yeah. Great advice from you, Jay. Um, I know. <laughs> uh, you should get paid for this. Um, but J and T, how are y'all doing? I'm pretty good. Good, you know, good to be here. It's a nice Saturday morning as usual, and nice and toasty. Always glad to start off that um, Saturday with in the fire. No other way. I'd rather be spending my time. It Sorry. sounds like it. <laughs> yeah, you really convinced us there, Tom. <laughs> uh, this is more important than sleep. That's why I'm here. <laughs> well said. And we hope to our listeners, whenever you're listening to, to this, that you're having a nice morning, afternoon, evening. Um, and I'm sure it's about to get even nicer. Maybe you're listening to it as you go to bed, and I just put I you to just, sleep with my yawn. I was just going to say that. <laughs> or maybe they have this set as their uh, alarm in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's one heck of an alarm. Yeah. Nothing will wake you up quite like us. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll keep the sound rolling. Um, no, alarm was actually the the first reason why we wanted to create a podcast. Yeah. It was, as you know what, we should, we should talk about the Bible and right before talking about the Bible, we should have it be able to be an alarm for people. You know? Yeah. yeah. So, this is an alarm that you cannot hit the snooze button on. We'll just keep talking. So, <laughs> there's no sleeping through this one. <laughs> we saw an opportunity, an unmet need. Um, cause I don't, I don't know if I've ever heard, we've ever heard of something like that before. So we figured it'd be some pioneers and be the first people to try it out. Um, mm-hmm. so let us know how it goes. Let us know if you can sleep. Obviously you can't because we're so riveting. Yeah. It's the best wake up alarm I could, I could imagine being. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. All right, Peter, what are we talking about today? All right. Yes. All jokes aside, we are. We're happy to bring you a new series. It's been probably almost a year since we began our previous series, uh, which was The Miracles of Jesus. This one is going to be uh, a little different. It'll be over the the books Ezra and Nehemiah, which in in your uh, modern Bible is broken down into two different books. But um, in the Jewish scriptures, it is considered one book. And hopefully you will understand why by the end of this series but we are excited to bring it to you it'll definitely be a, a new kind of series Ezra Nehemiah is um, very Old Testament focused but as with as with everything we talk about it all points to Jesus so there's some great substance in these books and hopefully you can learn something new as uh, I uh, don't know too much about about these books before beginning um, beginning the research or studies on for this podcast. Yeah. Should be. I had read Nehemiah in some detail before, and I've read through Ezra, but not in that much detail. So this will be a lot of fun to get into these things to less acknowledged books of the Bible, I think. And two very important ones, nonetheless. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much so. And you can definitely discover the gospel throughout these. And there's just a lot of historical stuff going on as well um, mm-hmm. that we would love to touch on, which we will. Um, we are going to mostly focus today on chapters one through three of Ezra. 
but um, I'll give a little bit of a background first. And some of the background verses we'll actually read are from Ezra 5, because it kind of summarizes a lot of chapters 1 through 3. Um, but that's all we'll be in, in beyond chapters 1 through 3, and then we'll circle back and look more specifically at those first few chapters. But as some background, um, Ezra Nehemiah begins near the end of the Babylonian exile for uh, for the Israelites. Um, it pertains to the Israelites' return to Jerusalem. So in the in the same around the same year that this uh, that the Israelites return to Jerusalem, Babylon is conquered by Persia. Um, Babylonians have been in exile, or the Babylonians have um, held the Israelites in exile for. Uh, several decades at this point, but things are starting to change as King Cyrus of Persia has conquered Babylon, has overthrown it, and that's where we pick up today. Um, the book of the book of books of Ezra and Nehemiah have uh, often believed to have three main characters: Zerubbabel, and then um, obviously Ezra and Nehemiah. And today we're going to focus on Zerubbabel, so we're not going to hear much about Ezra and Nehemiah today, but it is still part of the book um, where, where we uh, learn a little about Zerubbabel and specifically today, the rebuilding of the temple as they are repatriated back to Jerusalem. Um, so just as a little background on Zerubbabel, he's, if you didn't know, he's in part of the genealogy of Christ. He's a descendant of the line of Joseph mm-hmm. and he is yeah, an important figure in his own right because of that, but also um, does some important stuff in his own lifetime here. And also the temple that they're rebuilding that we'll look at today was originally destroyed in 586 BC. Um, And just for some context, in 605 BC, the Babylonians invaded Judah for the first time. And... um, the Babylonians captured Jerusalem in 597. Uh, that began a second wave of exile uh, to Babylon. And then this picks up in 539 BC. Um, so that's just some background context for you. And to get into some scriptures for some for some more background context, I'll go ahead and um, actually... Um, <laughs> Justin, do you want to read Ezra 5, 8 through 13, and then Thomas, Ezra 5, 13 through, or 14 through 17? Sure. Ezra 5, starting at verse 8. Let it be known to the king that we went in the province of Judea to the temple of the great God, which is being built with heavy stones, and timber is being laid in the walls. And this diligently and prospers in their hands asked to those elders and spoke thus to them who commanded you to build this temple and finish these walls we also asked them their names to inform you that we might write the names of the men who were chief among them thus they returned us names are saying we are the servants of the god of heaven and earth and we are the temple that was built many years ago which the great king of israel built and completed but our fathers provoked the god of heaven to wrath he gave them into the hand of nebuchadnezzar king of babylon the chaldean who destroyed the this temple and carried the people away to Babylon. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to build this house of God. Right. Uh, Alan, do you want to read 14 through 17? Yes. My bad. All my bad. <laughs> and the golden silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought into the temple of Babylon. These, wait, you just read that. No, you're good. Okay. These Cyrus took the king out of the temple of Babylon and they were delivered to one whose name was Shezbazar, whom he had made governor. And he said to him, Take these vessels and go and put them in the temple that is in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt on its site. Then the Shezbazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And from that time until now, it has been in building 
and it is not yet finished. Therefore, if it seems good to the king, let search be made in the royal archives there in Babylon to see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus, the king, for the rebuilding of this house of, of God in Jerusalem, and let the king send his pleasure in this matter. All right. Thank you, um, Thomas and Justin. So though uh, this chapter comes a few chapters after what we we're looking at today, it um, summarizes where uh, where things have gone in the first few chapters. So um, the passage that we just read is uh, a report being given to King Darius, who's a later king after uh, Cyrus. But he receives a report about how and why the Israelites were allowed to return and enabled to rebuild the temple. And uh, went into a little bit of history of um, uh, the Israelites angering God and um, like living in a lot of sin. And then they were given to the Babylonians, uh, conquered by Nebuchadnezzar, and then given into exile. But then Cyrus comes in and makes a decree uh, after overthrowing Babylon as the king of Persia gives a decree that the house of God should re be rebuilt. And so... That's what the Israelites had been up to up to that point in chapter 5 there, um, which we will go ahead and look at in further to in further next. But um, that just gives a rough, a rough summary of, of where things stand at this point. Yeah, that's a pretty good job of summing it up. Yeah, I went ahead and read a little ahead and was reading that summary, and it's like, oh, this explains things pretty well. Um, <laughs> All right, so I'm going to go ahead and read chapter one of Ezra Nehemiah. Um, it's a full chapter, but it's not too long. So hopefully I won't bore you too much with the scriptures, but um, this takes place at the, the beginning of King Cyrus's reign. So it reads, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, all of his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with besides freewill offerings from the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus king of Persia brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. And the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400, and these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Um, yeah, so here we see more specifically uh, King Cyrus's um, role in enabling the Israelites to return home and build the temple. He kind of remarkably and somewhat unexpectedly gives them like compassion and mercy, just very thoughtful for them and says, yeah, you're allowed, I'll allow you to um, in line with some of these prophecies that preceded the book of Ezra, um, I'll allow you to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And not only that, but I'll supply you with a bunch of gold and goods and beasts and silver uh, so that that may happen, which I think is, uh, yeah, like I said, pretty remarkable. Um, is there anything in, the, in this chapter that sticks out to you guys? The the main thing I see is, you know, you just talked about Cyrus himself. He seems like a, a pretty cool guy. Not going to lie. <laughs> I like this. Um, it, it's kind of reminiscent to me of their uh, uh, Babylonian king. Cyrus is a Persian king, but the Babylonian kings like Nebuchadnezzar, who we see kind of have like 
I, I guess, change in heart or obviously something happened where their heart, his heart was really touched for Nebuchadnezzar. I think it happens in the um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego story. And he sees them faithfully following their God, and he's kind of stirred to recognize that. And here we see kind of this similar, maybe to an even greater extent, God somehow doing some work in the hearts of these um, kings necessarily follow him. But still, you see that there's faithfulness and there's something that's striking the hearts of these kings, like the fact that they do not follow God, but somehow God is working in their hearts. And that's that's pretty cool. You see pretty clearly here in this decree that Cyrus puts out. Yeah, I really like verse two. Um, Thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Um, I don't know. I like it when foreign kings proclaim God's superiority of over everything else. And I think that's what's going on here. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I have a little footnote. Um, that says uh, he probably came to know the Jewish scriptures through um, Daniel and yeah. receiving treatment, and so that's kind of cool. I was gonna, I was gonna mention the same thing. Uh, I have a footnote that says so in verse two, when Cyrus writes, "The Lord God of Lord God of Heaven has given me these kingdoms," um, that title he could have just said God. And recognize that you know he was just some god of many gods that people believe. But the fact that he used Lord God of Heaven indicates that he was quote by advisors to say this. And I have another little note in my Bible that a lot of people think it was Daniel that brought to, brought all this to Cyrus's attention and brought these prophecies to his attention. Specifically, I think we'll talk about it shortly. But specifically, a prophecy in Isaiah. 44 to 45 that mentions Cyrus by name as the one who will send the Israelites back to uh, Jerusalem. And I, I guess the, the thinking here is that like Daniel or other Jewish advisors showed him that prophecy and he probably went, ah, oh, that's pretty cool. <laughs> I'll do that. <laughs> and he, he took it as a sign that he should do it. So it's, it's pretty neat um, to see how kind of that influence happens. And Thomas, I think you're right on with that. Um, you know, those are the little things that happen that God somehow plans it out many, many years, you know, centuries in advance that, and it takes, you know, individual people like Daniel and individual circumstances to, to bring it true, but it all comes true. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, I have similar, yeah, that's well said. And I have similar takeaways and uh, that I, I just have to believe that, you know, God's, God is, putting this on Cyrus's heart um, to say such things. And yeah, going back to that verse that you brought up, Thomas, verse two, um, it's kind of, uh, <laughs> for someone who's king of Persia, which is, uh, I don't know the details, probably, probably the largest empire at the time, um, at least in the uh, biblical regions, um, he says, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. It's kind of a, kind of a humble thing to say in a way um, that he's saying that his authority is given to him by God and not just um, the God that he necessarily believes in, but he's saying it's the God of, uh, the God of Judah um, and, and the God of heaven, which I think is, is pretty cool. And, if you know you're living in the time and you were an Israelite and you heard you heard um, <laughs> that the that King Cyrus said this, it would have been wow, something God must be at work here. Um, like that's pretty cool. I don't know how Cyrus would have said something otherwise because um, he just has this favorable tone and and viewpoint towards an attitude towards uh, the Israelites, which I think is pretty cool. Um, it's more than a favorable tone. He gives them a lot of things like gifts <laughs> he makes sure that they're yeah. ready to go when the time mm -hmm. comes for them to go yeah yeah it's yeah it's more than just words it is actions and verses eight through ten you know talk about all the basins of gold and um, vessels of gold and silver that 
that he supplied them with. Um, and so it's, it's, it's noteworthy. It's outstanding. And um, I think considering where the Israelites were at this time, they had been held captive by uh, the kingdom of Babylon for so long, for decades on end. And yeah, there were times when um, like Daniel was out working on the heart of Nebuchadnezzar and God was working on the heart of Nebuchadnezzar um, as we've talked about in previous podcasts and and there's just there's, there's still a lot of God at work throughout all the, the exile, but it is um, a, a welcomed and promising start for this uh, for the Israelites under under the under King Cyrus and under Persia now because there's probably a, a little bit of a different attitude towards the Israelites overall that King Cyrus is going to allow the Israelites to return home. Um, and just as a cool little history um, history lesson I learned, there's something called, uh, well, first of all, Persian kings um, were tended to be more um, receptive of and accommodative local religions than other, other kingdoms. Um, and King Cyrus obviously fits into this and future kings throughout the book of Ezra and Nehemiah will fit into this as well. But there's something called the Cyrus cylinder, which is, an ancient clay cylinder that was discovered by archaeologists. Um, and it has written declarations in the ancient language cuneiform about King Cyrus. And um, the cylinder sort of talks about his new king, his new statecraft that he brings into um, that he brings into Persia and Babylon in contrast to the Babylonians that he defeated in which he talks about um being more receptive to local religions. And one of the extracts on the Cyrus cylinders reads, quote unquote, I return to these sacred cities, the sanctuaries of which have been in ruins for a long time, images which used to live therein and established for them permanent sanctuaries. I also gathered all their former inhabitants and returned to them their habitations. May all the gods whom I have resettled in their sacred cities Ask daily Bell and Nebo, I don't know who those are, for a long life for me. <laughs> Marduk, my lord, may, say, may they say that Cyrus the king who worships you and Simbis is his son and goes on for a little bit. But um, I think that's cool. Like there's historical proof in this cylinder, which if you look it up, if you Google the Cyrus cylinder, it is just this artifact or um, yeah, ancient, obviously an ancient piece of clay with writing on it and it's cool that he, he talks about this even if he wasn't belie- a believer in the lord god he may have had other gods that he believed in it's still cool to see god at work and, and showing favor to the israelites yeah i have a picture of it in my bible it's, a, it's an actual cylinder <laughs> hmm? yes it is it's, it's cool a cylindrical object as uh, another note, so I noticed this when I was researching uh, or reading through some commentaries. Um, it reads verses 7 through 11, which it talks about all the it's an articles of the house, pretty much the artifacts that were taken from Jerusalem when this captivity began. And they were stored in the Babylonian temple with the Babylonian gods. Cyrus gives that back to um, the people headed to Jerusalem so that they can take and put in their temple. Um, you can read the list of things in verses 7 through 11 here. But uh, what I was reading said there are some items missing. The altar of incense, table of showbread, the brazen altar, the golden lampstand, and the Ark of the Covenant. Um, so if you're not seeing them here, it's kind of an interesting note. Though, because presumably they were destroyed when the temple was destroyed by the, by the Babylonians. Mm. Not the Ark of the Covenant, though. We see that come back in Indiana Jones. Mm, yes so, <laughs> a great documentary <laughs> i'm glad you mentioned that justin <laughs> yes that don't forget that little bit of history there um and yeah i like the this all the history that ties into this um and that we can learn about this and how it coincides with you know persia and king cyrus and the cyrus cylinder and the Bible kind of merge into one here because, um, yeah, the, I mean, the Bible is very, is, is definitely history too. And it's cool to see 
um, confirmation of some of the things that happened in sources outside the Bible as well. Um, yeah, so safe to, I think it's safe to say things are off to a good start after such long exile in, in Babylon where good things do happen, like God is at work, um, but they're still in, in exile and not in their, their sojourners in this foreign land of Babylon, and now they're allowed to return. And so things are off to a good start here. Um, and with that, we can move on to chapter two, unless you guys have anything else to add on chapter one. No. All right. Well, chapter two, if you have your Bible with you, it's... I nominate Thomas to read <laughs> chapter two. <laughs> All right. I can read it. <laughs> I'll just have you stop at after <laughs> verse after verse two. After verse two? Yes. Uh, unless you want to read the rest, I'll let you look at them. But <laughs> now these were the people of the province who came out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah. Seraiah, Relaiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Baana. <laughs> like banana, sorry. <laughs> yes, that's how I probably would have pronounced it as well. Um, and then the rest of the chapter just talks about all the numbers of the, the people of Israel, uh, I guess. The, there's a lot of family names mentioned and how many uh, how many Israelites from these families, from the line of these families, go back to Jerusalem. Um, but there's a lot of them, let's just say that. I uh, encourage you, if you want to read the chapter <laughs> in your own time, to do that. But there's just a lot of, uh, like Thomas read a few crazy names there. There's a lot more and a lot, a lot of numbers next to them. Um, but I will finish this chapter with verses 68 through, oh, not, never mind, verses 68 through 70, yeah, um, which says, Some of the heads of families, when they came to the house of the Lord that had been Jerusalem, made freewill offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minus of silver, and 100 priests' garments. Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns and all the rest of Israel in their towns. Um, and then circling back to six, verse 64, it says the whole assembly together was 42,360. So there's about 42,000 Israelites who return home, which is actually a, a small percentage of um, just a fraction of the total number of Israelites who return at this time. Uh, and there is... Um, a verse in Isaiah that says in verse 1022, which ties into this, for though thy people Israel be as the sand of the sea, yet a remnant of them shall return. The consumption decree shall overflow with righteousness. Um, so that might be a little bit of a, a prophecy or foreshadowing of the return to Israel. And we can see this here because there are only 42,000, which is still a large number, but still a fraction of the Israelites that, uh, that returned them. Yeah, I was wondering why, like, uh, why only a remnant would come back. So, as I thought about it, I, uh, so some research pointed out that yes, it was pretty much the heads of the households who came back. So that would naturally only be a smaller number of people. Um, also, as Peter just read a prophecy, so this kind of keeps in mind with prophecy of the Bible, which shows some of just God's sovereignty there that only a remnant came back. That was foretold. That was what was going to happen. <laughs> That's what happened. Um, and then I also read that, so in the Babylonian exile, apparently, like, these people, you know, people from Jerusalem and, and from Judea, they weren't, like, terribly bad off. They, in many cases, were kind of wealthy, you know, they were part of the society, and some people did not want to leave that behind. So they remained in mm. the Mesopotamian region there, um, in what is now the Persian Empire, I guess. Um, I don't know, maybe we'll get to some reading. I don't know enough to say whether those people eventually went back to Jerusalem, 
what we get later in Ezra and Nehemiah are more people going back. So maybe everyone or most everyone will make it back eventually. I suppose we'll get to that as we read on. Um, but that says something about some of the hearts of these people, I suppose. Going off of that really quick, um, that's actually why we have the book of Esther. Um, uh-huh. Because there are some Jews who stay yes. behind in Persia hmm. um, and they make a life for themselves. And there's, there is a community there. Mordecai yeah. and Esther are part of that community. Yeah. Um, and as and, you see, a faithful community too. So, yeah. But they don't go back to the temple, which is very interesting um, because they have no temple, even though they're in, in, even though like the temple is rebuilt, but like they don't have a temple to sacrifice on, which is pretty crucial to the Jewish faith. Um, and yet they're still loyal to God and God still works to save right. them. So mm-hmm. very cool. So not all of them didn't come back just because of a, like a selfishness in their hearts. Some of them stayed and built up a loyal community to God. Mm-hmm. Good yeah. note. Yeah, I like both. The, I like that context that you both provided. Um, and that's cool to know. And it's, yeah, I'm sure there, there's a mix of some who enjoyed the, the wealth that they may have been accumulating or have, or just the lifestyle, that wealthy lifestyle they were living in Mesopotamia region. And they're like, oh, we'll stay here. But then you have others who are servants of God, as you see in the book of Esther. And that's probably also a large, a large percentage of which are like that. And um, they're spreading, you know, the, the word of God and uh, yeah, to, to that region of the world, which I think is obviously fulfills an important role. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so also, also in this chapter, you're introduced to Zerubbabel, who um, is not mentioned much in these chapters, but he is in charge of the rebuilding of the temple. And then Nehemiah is also mentioned among the other names that Thomas, um, Thomas read out. I think this is a different Nehemiah, though. Um, oh, really? Because Nehemiah was part of a later wave of people who went. To, so I think the so Ooh. the Nehemiah mentioned here and the Mordecai mentioned here are not Nehemiah of Nehemiah and Mordecai of Esther. I think they're different. Actually, I might be wrong, would, but I think they're different people. Though it makes sense because. Ezra follows like some 60 years after Zerubbabel. And Nehemiah comes after that. And Nehemiah comes after that, yeah. I'm not sure if Nehemiah comes with the first wave and then goes back to the king or not. Yeah. Um, He might do that. Well, we'll, well, you know, that's a bridge we cross when we get (laughs) to... Yes, we will get there. (laughs) The the Nehemiah part of the series. So if you're wondering... (laughs) This is an op- this would be an open outstanding question, and you can stay tuned for it. Now, Ezra, whoever wrote this chapter or wrote this book, could just solve this problem easily and put a last name in here. <laughs> that would be too but, easy. No, that make it too easy, honest. Um, <laughs> that would be helpful. But when we discover the which Nehemiah this is, you will know as well. <laughs> We will cross that bridge when we get there. Um, but that's all I have from chapter two. If you guys want to say anything, um, I had I had one more thing that came up in some research. So um, when it's talking about in the middle of this chapter, all of the different people who came at it mentions like two groups of people among the groups of people. So one is it's a whole bunch of priests who come back, and there's a lesser amount of Levites who come back. This comes from a theologian named Morgan, who I believe is G. Campbell Morgan, ah. but I cannot confirm, but he, he says, an examination of this list is remarkable, principally from the small number of Levites who returned. Nearly 10 times as many priests as Levites went back to the land. This, of course, was an inversion of the original order. Um, and then later on, I read in that commentary, this is, this is from David Music. Some speculate that the Levites were particularly invested in worship at the high places scattered on the hills all around the pre-exilic Israel and Judah. The purifying fires of exile effectively burned out this idolatrous impulse, and therefore few Levites wanted to return to the promised land. So I don't know. It shows maybe the deterioration of 
what was originally planned where the Levites would be that priestly group. Yeah. And now they're not as much. Yeah, that's kind of sad. But also, I'm glad you mentioned that. I'm glad that you actually read this chapter. Um, <laughs> I skimmed the chapter, um, but I did not read everything word for word. <laughs> um, so that that's interesting to know. And the Levites will be talked about in chapter three a little bit um, as well. So keep that in mind, which we will hit to now. Um, all right. So chapter three, this is where things, this is where we start to see some of the gospel at work. And to this point, things are going well, I would say. Um, the Israelites, the, this, um, re the remnant of which returns, uh, again, are given full authority to do so by Cyrus and all these resources. And now they are about to rebuild the temple. So there's probably a lot of... Um, a lot of high spirits going on uh, that are, are, I would say, this remnant is in high spirits, um, as we're about to see a little bit further in chapter three. But also, chapter three has a bit of a, a foreshadowing or a warning. It does not end on a great note, and that's sort of where we, um, where we'll see some of the gospel and, and some of this point to Jesus and why, why that happens. Um, but chapter three. Um, We'll go ahead and get reading. Justin, do you want to read verses 1 through 7? Sure. Right. And when the seventh month had come, and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. And Jeshua, the son of Josedek, nice name, his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, his brethren, arose and built the altar of God of Israel, of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, man of God. Though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, they set the altar on its bases, and they offered offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening burnt offerings. They also kept the Feast of Tabernacles, as written, and offered daily the burnt offerings in the number required by the ordinance for each day. Afterwards, they offered the regular burnt offering, and those for new moods, and for all the appointed feasts of the Lord that were consecrated, and those of everyone who willingly offered a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. They also gave money to the masons and to the carpenters, and food, drink, and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre, to bring cedar logs from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the mission which they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. All right. Um, and Thomas, do you want to finish out the chapter? Yes. First five through seven. Uh, eight through eighteen. Oh, oh! I thought we ended it. That's my bad. I was following along, and I followed too late. Now, in the second year after the wait, eight through what? Sorry. Uh, eight through thirteen. Eight through thirteen. Now, in the second year after they're coming to the house of God at Jerusalem in the second month. Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedek, made, made a beginning, together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites, from twenty years old and upward, to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua and his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, and the sons of Judah together, supervised the workmen in the house of God along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple, the, Lord, of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites and the sons of Asaph and cymbals to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout. They praised the Lord because of the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being, set, being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. All right. Thank you, 
Justin and Thomas, and um, <laughs> this is definitely a very scripture-heavy podcast today, so thanks for reading that, and for listeners for <laughs> staying um, staying with us through all of this. But um, I really like this chapter, and I think it's just a lot of good stuff in it. Uh, starting off in verses 1 through 7, there's, from the looks of it, um, or the sound of it, the Israelites led by Zerubbabel are trying to do everything right in their power, it seems like, um, to rebuild the temple as to God following the law. And there's several verses in here that talk about the burnt offerings by number according to the rule, the feast of booths, uh, the offerings at the new moon and all appointed feasts of the Lord and free will offerings. And all of these they finally have to do now when they're in Babylon, um, surrounded by all these uh, non-Christian um, temples and uh, yeah, all these temples built for other gods and whatnot. Um, and yeah, and while they were often, oftentimes oppressed and persecuted, they didn't get the chance to do these sacrifices and offerings to the Lord. And now they get to do it. Um, and so you can see they're, they're following, sounds like from they're following the law pretty well and um, finally an opportunity to do this. They're paying the, the masons and carpenters well, giving the Sidonians food and drink to, to eat this. So everything seems to be going according to plan and seems to be going well. And then also in verses eight through 10, it talks about Zerubbabel and he seems to be managing and overseeing the project well and, and making sure it is well supervised and well constructed. And then uh, they, they're saying that praise to the Lord in verses 10 through 11. They say for he is good for a steadfast love endures forever toward Israel and they lay the foundation. Um, so, on paper, everything seems to be to be going well and according to plan, um, starting from, you know, all the way back in chapter one, when Cyrus gives his decree in line with the prophecies starting to be, um, they're starting to become realized and the, the Israelites are starting to return to their homeland and rebuild the temple. And they're finally getting to, to uh, submit these offerings and sacrifice to the Lord and Rubel is managing the project very well. Um, so I'll, I'll pause there before we get into the rest of the chapter where things sort of take a, an unexpected sour turn. Um, but do you guys have, have anything to mention so far in this chapter? It just seems like a lot of work. Um, mm -hmm. So, I mean, good for them for to do that and provide everything that the people who are doing the work need to, to do it. I mean, I think that shows a little change of heart. It's almost like it's excellent. It worked. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It turned them back to the path where they kind of want to do this. And I do think it'll be a pretty cool time to have been present at this point in history. Um, you know, we know from earlier that when Solomon built the temple, it was just an amazing, incredible temple. And it would have been a lot, I think, to be a part of the group of people who saw that destroyed and now gets to come back and rebuild something probably not quite as grand but still the temple which is pretty awesome yes i'm trying to find some scripture that pertains um is that maybe exodus 40 sorry i'm just to the original temple <laughs> Yes, actually. I'm assuming it's it's pretty similar. I had the same thought earlier when I was reading this. We have an episode on we go into the temple. That's a the bit. tabernacle. Okay. Oh yeah. Um, but I I this still applies. Um, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle throughout all their journeys. Wherever the cloud was taken up form over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and the fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Um, and so the reason why I bring that up is just because they build this temple and they commission it and there's great rejoicing of everybody like restoring the place of worship to god and yet god's presence does not fill the temple like it did the tabernacle 
or like it did the temple before Solomon's temple, um, a great cloud filled the temple um, so that people were not able to see. And like, that's probably why the people were weeping. Um, yeah. But yes, God did not personally fill it. Perhaps God is, has started to change how he saves his people and how he dwells with them. Yeah. And that is, Thomas, I'm so glad you brought that up because I was not, <laughs> I didn't know what verses to bring up about like the cloud and the fire and, and just God's, the sign that God's presence is there because um, that's the crux of this chapter here. That's where things um, turn. And uh, like, like we mentioned, Justin, like this is so much work. And uh, initially, you know, when we, in the beginning of this chapter, when we read Ezra five and, uh, the account was given to King Darius that because our fathers, the, Jew, uh, the Jewish fathers, had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And so, towards the end of the king of, or towards the end of the Babylonian exile, um, you see they're sent back in, in chapter three here. They're sent back and, and rebuilding, rebuilding the temple, and they're doing all this awesome work. They're trying very hard, perhaps like you said, Justin, showing a change in heart. Um, and showing that the, this Babylon exile may have worked to change the hearts of the Israelites. But at the same time, um, their works in rebuilding the temple are not enough. And despite them seemingly doing everything right, um, God's presence does not end up being there once they lay the foundation. Again, they're uh, doing all this hard work, submitting these offerings, and sacrifices to God, that praising God after the foundation is laid, but, um, but yet it, it just doesn't, it just doesn't happen. Like God's presence is not there, um, and the Ark of the Covenant is not there either, which signifies God's presence. Because Indiana yeah. Jones has it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's off in some cave in the Middle East. <laughs> we cannot forget that. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I, I just feel like the situation was set up to success, set up for success, and uh, it may not have been success in in the end of this chapter here that the that the Israelites were expecting. Um, yeah, I'm glad we're talking about this because the weeping kind of confused me a little bit because I wasn't quite sure if it was weeping because like it was good weeping or if it was. Oh, wow, look, this is such a dramatic and emotional moment that we're rebuilding this temple. Or if it was weeping because the temple itself was just lacking in grandeur to what we saw from the first temple, or if it was weeping because of what I think you guys are indicating, which is that we don't quite fully God's presence here yet. Um, and that kind of makes sense to me i think because we also see the weeping contrasted pretty sharply in verses 12 and 13 with the shouting for joy with the people who are building the temple which seems to indicate to me that the weeping is more like more of a negative weeping mm -hmm. yeah i get, yeah it's difficult to to fully discern this and that's why thomas i'm glad that you brought up those uh verses because I, about the the previous temple and tabernacle because i think it it helps us understand why they're weeping i do think there there may be it may not be as look as grand as it once was so that's why it says many of the priests and levites and heads of the father's houses old men who had seen the first house wept mm -hmm. with a loud voice when they saw the yeah. foundation of this house being laid though many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sounds of joyful shouting from the weeping um i think like there's some rejoicing like oh this temple is being built um in line with you know, the prophecies of us being able to return back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. But at the same time, there's still something amiss. Something's not right. Like, um, maybe the temple, A, is not as grand as it once looked, but also B, and, and more importantly, I think, um, God's presence is not there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, what do you guys think went wrong? Why, was, why, was, uh, why do you think his presence was not there? I don't know. That's a good question. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think um, like it kind of goes back to like even David, um, how David was like, 
I want to build a temple for you, God. And God was like, no, hang on a minute. I will establish your line forever. And through your line will come the Messiah. Um, and like Solomon did eventually build the temple. Um, but it was never about like the temple. It was always about like David's line to the Messiah. And like the temple is wonderful and awesome and so crucial to um, Jewish worship uh, that like without the temple, like they lost their connection to God. And that's how they very much felt. Um, but for God, it was never about like the temple is the only way for you to be with me um, or his presence. It was like, I mean, like the, the earth is the footstool of God, right? Um, like he, he's not limited to the temple. And now that it has been destroyed, I think like from here on out in the rest of like the Old Testament, um, he's still speaking to his people. He's still saving his people. He's still sending um, prophets to tell them like his word and for them to follow his decrees and laws. Um, and yeah, and yes, to like keep the sacrifices as well. Um, but like, I think this is also like almost like God saying, I'm changing, I'm starting to change the way that I relate to my people mm. and that ultimate change will come with Jesus Christ in the future. Um, and of course, like Jesus said, I will destroy this temple and rebuild it again in three days. Um, and so like the temple, this temple has been destroyed and God will rebuild it again with Christ. Um, and so I think, yeah, I think Esther is a good example of this, of like God still putting people in places and saving and, and being with his people re regardless of a temple. Mm -hmm. Very well said. Yeah. I think you hit the nail on the head there, Thomas. That's, sort of the conclusion that I was coming up with. And like you, like Thomas mentioned Esther, and you see a similar theme throughout the Old Testament. Um, and I think this story just illustrates the, the shortcomings of humans to bring God back to them or the inability to do so. Um, I think it, and, and, and through this, God is trying to show them something a little more than just like the physical temple and God's presence in the temple. Like he's trying mm -hmm. to, they fix their eyes on something greater than that. And it's that's, I'm sure we'll see this theme throughout this series, but also, as I said, the Bible at large. Um, and that, in that as hard as humans try, we can never reconcile ourselves to God through our own efforts. And here are the efforts, the tremendous efforts the Israelites made to rebuild the temple. Um, and, and God, he doesn't require humans to build a house for him to come home. But um, ultimately through Jesus, he brings us home himself out of our exile uh, and slavery to sin um, and creates a home for us, rather us creating, trying to create a home for him. And, and through that, he can dwell in us, but it's only through him that that can happen. So I think everything here is like much of the Old Testament, just a glimpse uh, and a foretaste of, of what's to come. And he's trying to get us to see this, this eternal presence of God that we can access. Um, beyond just you know the, the, a physical location of, of one temple but god is trying to um point at something greater greater than that for sure absolutely good word yeah um and i kind of wanted to close this will tie into what we, what we were just talking about but uh, in the beginning of ezra uh, let me go back to Ezra 1, because I think it's there. Um, yeah, in the first verse, it says, back in the beginning of Ezra 1, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Uh, so there's some prophecy in Jeremiah that I'm going to read about all of this. And I'm sure you've heard one of these verses before, but Jeremiah 29, 10 through 15 says, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I'll come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. 
You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Uh, so that's one of the prophecies uh, in Jeremiah regarding Israel's repatriation uh, to Jerusalem. But I think it's it's more than that, and that's what um, maybe God is trying to teach the Israelites through this, through this sort of anticlimactic ending that we see in Ezra 3 where God's presence is not actually in, in the temple at the moment. Um, and I think it's, and the verse says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in the future. It's, that's more than just bringing them back to Jerusalem. And I think maybe the, uh, the, the key lesson is in God's presence not being there. Like it's more than just the physical being back to Jerusalem. The plans that the Lord has for uh, the Israelites and for us is ultimately an eternal plan and an, an eternal hope and future that we can have through him. Um, and I also like verse 14 where it says, I'll be found by you and I'll bring you back from captivity. Um, and while yes, in these verses or in these chapters, the, you know, a portion of the Israelites do return from captivity. Ultimately, I, I like to think that that is Jesus coming down to earth to, to find us and bring us back from our captivity, from sin. And I think that's, you know, the greater, the greater message and theme of, uh, of these first few chapters and much of the Bible, or all of the Bible. Yeah. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. Um, do you guys have any final thoughts before we close this out? I do not, no, but it's cool to see it tied back into some more prophecy there. Yes. I have no to, final uh, thoughts. Say, yeah, something good. Looking forward, keep those prophecies in mind, too, because we'll read the rest of Ezra. And Maya. Yeah. And yeah, since so just start, there are so many, like, we could probably spend an entire episode just looking at the prophecies for, um, for this. And so. Yeah, which we could have gotten to a little bit of more this episode, but I'm sure we will in future episodes in this series. Um, so it is pretty cool how all these prophecies tie in to what's happening. Um, but yeah, I can go ahead and pray us out. Mm -hmm. uh, dear right. Lord, <laughs> dear Lord, thank you for this opportunity to record another episode of In the Fire. Um, we pray that uh, that we just try to see you and and jesus and everything we read in the bible and try to understand um just yeah every every chance we get um in your word to to look at you and see where you are and in, in the scripture lord because that um truly helps us appreciate all that you've done for us and um doing the things that us humans cannot do on our own lord you did that you took our place um and accomplish that through sending your son Jesus on the cross, Lord. I pray that we um, recognize that and take that take that heart all the more, and that we just have a, a heart that burns for you and and lives for you, Lord. I pray uh, we all have uh, good weeks going forward, and um, yeah, and, uh, that's about it. In your name, I pray. Amen. 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 Mm -hmm. All right, Thomas. If our listeners want to reach out to us, where can they find us? And Justin will let, no, I, I'll say. Uh, <laughs> so if you want to reach out to us, there are a multitude of ways. And by multitude, I mean mainly two. So we, we have an email and we have an Instagram account. The Instagram account is in the fire podcast. And the email is three in the fire at gmail.com. The number three in the fire at gmail.com. You know, that might be the first time. What are we like, 80 <laughs> episodes in? Yeah, exactly. That Woo! Let's go. Yeah. Well, you nailed it and you said it with confidence. Um, yes. Yeah, as if there was any doubt. There was never. <laughs> there was never. <laughs> yeah. um, all right. Well, Please get in touch with us. We love we love talking with y'all. I actually have deleted Instagram. Um, and so that's why I haven't been 
too active on that personally, but <laughs> um, we still got, I think both of you guys are running it. Yeah. Um, and then I can probably be checking the email a little bit more too. Yeah. But yeah, I have, yeah. I have decreased my Instagram consumption a little bit, but I will be on the, in the fire page. Um, yes. If you message us, we will respond. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, we will. Mm-hmm. We are looking forward to uh, the rest of the series and uh, we can't wait to talk to you guys next episode. Until then, see ya. See Bye. Ya. Bye.